0: Hi, Culture Gab Fest listeners. Normally, you hear me here with Steve and Dana, but today I am coming to you solo to let you know that I have a new podcast about women and work. I'm the first female editor of Slate, and ever since I took this job four years ago, I've been getting questions about what it's like to be a woman editor or a woman in charge of a news magazine. I never know how to answer that question. I just am the kind of leader I am. But when I look around at my profession and others, it's still clear that there are fewer women at the top than there are men. So in this show, Women in Charge, I sought out really fascinating smart women in charge in various industries and asked them how they lead and how things are changing for women in their fields. I'm here in your feed to bring you episode one of Women in Charge. It's a conversation I think you'll enjoy. We've talked about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and it's with Aline Brosh McKenna, the co-creator of that show and the writer of The Devil Wears Prada. Before we get to my interview with Aline, I want to encourage you to subscribe to Women in Charge in its own feed. It's the best way to support the show and the journalism we do here at Slate. You'll find links to subscribe in the description of this podcast. It's a project I'm really proud of, so I hope you'll like it. All right. Here's Aileen Brosh McKenna on Women in Charge. Women in Charge is brought to you by the Business Platinum Card from American Express. Platinum enhances life's moments, both big and small, so that you can do business to the fullest. Don't do business without it. Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week, I'm speaking with Aline Brosh McKenna, the creator of one of the most iconic female bosses in cinema history. So you don't read runway? Uh, no. And before today, you had never heard of me? No. And you have no
1: style or sense of fashion? Well, um, I think that depends on what you're... No, no wasn't a question.
0: That's Meryl Streep as Miranda Priestley from The Devil Wears Prada, one of the many films Aline Brosh McKenna wrote. Now she's the co-creator of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, the award-winning musical television show whose fourth season premieres next month. Today we talk about the transition from solitary work to running a big team, the bad Hollywood habits she's trying to avoid replicating, and how to foster diversity in the workplace. So, Let's start with your career. Tell us what you are in charge of currently.
1: I am the executive producer, showrunner, head writer of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend.
0: Which is now entering its...
1: It's now, we're about to start, well, we're just starting our fourth season. So it was funny because somebody was asking Rachel yesterday, so, you know, it's the end, has it feel to be the end? And she said, we're about to make 18 movies. (laughs) Or really, every three episodes we make a movie, so let's say five movies. And you wouldn't ask somebody who was about to make five movies how it felt to be done. (laughs) We don't feel done. Um, We have about anywhere between 175 and 225 people working on the show. It ebbs and flows based on what phase we're in. And I have been a screenwriter since 1991. And I've produced three pilots, but basically was a person who worked for other people. And then with this show, I became a boss. And that was a really
0: interesting experience. What was most surprising or interesting to you about it?
1: Everyone needs a different kind of boss. And that was surprising that you sort of have to move your style around a little bit and figure out what works best to communicate with different sorts of people. I found that that works. There's certain things that are sort of non-starters or things that, tendencies that people have where I know we're, we're not going to be a good match. You know, if someone's late for an interview, we're not going to enjoy working together because I really value promptness, mm-hmm. um, mostly because I think it's respectful of others. But, you know, other than that, it's sort of you develop over time an instinct for understanding what would be the best way to communicate to this person. How much praise do you need to give before you give a critique or suggestion? So it was is interesting to see it's sort of not one size fits all.
0: Yeah, I mean the psychological aspects of management, I think, are part of what makes it really interesting. Mm-hmm. You're spinning up these this apparatus of two hundred odd people. How do you have time to learn what styles work for which people? Is it, does it vary person to person? Does it vary type to type, like writers need this and directors need this? How do you think about it?
1: No, I think it varies person to person. Also, what I notice is that people have a relationship to authority that has nothing to do with their relationship to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sometimes you have to sort of understand, oh, this is a person who gets a little poppy and hot around someone just because they're in a position of authority. And then other people just sort of like seamlessly understand how to speak to someone who is in charge of them. And that's as much a part of someone's personality at work as anything else is sort of their style. And realizing that it doesn't necessarily have to do with you was also an interesting thing to learn.
0: So, okay, so you're having a day, you're, you're at work, you, maybe you're... Uh, you, shooting and still writing some episodes yeah. which I think is the phase you guys are in right now. Yeah. How would you describe what you're trying to achieve and what you're trying to avoid? So you're you're doling out praise and admonishment and trying to, to psychologically manage all these people, but what are you trying to get them to do and what are you trying to get them to avoid?
1: Right. Well there's not I wouldn't say there's a lot of admonishment. What well, what I try and do is give clear feedback about process. And that I would say is probably my main emphasis is trying to figure out What are the procedures, processes, how are we doing things and how can that be better for everyone to be as efficient and organized as possible? Because my goal for myself, but also for the people who who work at the show is that everybody can also live their lives and that people can have manageable personal lives so that we're not we don't have a redundant or slow process. So every season and really every day, I look for more efficient ways to do things. And sometimes that means delegating. Sometimes that means, you know, moving personnel around so that people are in the right spot. I actually think one of the biggest challenges I have is because, you know, the showrunner is responsible for the writing, the shooting and the editing, but you can't physically be in all those places. And so... Finding out what's happening in all those places is one of the challenges that I have because what I didn't understand when I started is that people manage the truth for you. They don't always tell you, they either don't want to share feedback about someone else's work that they feel like might impact them negatively, or you know, people maybe are giving you a slightly altered version of what's happening, and so you kind of have to be there yourself. And also... The other thing I found was having saying my door is open is not sufficient to figure out how people are feeling and how things are going. You have to go out and say, How are you? How was this? How was yesterday? What did you think about this? What do you think about this process? What do you think about this, you know, new thing we're doing? Or you can't just say, Come to me when you have an issue. You have
0: to actively sort of go and elicit opinions and feedback. How do you fit that into a day that's presumably already pretty full?
1: You know, even 10 minutes somewhere can make a big difference and also learning who to talk to who will give you the feedback that you're looking for and finding people who understand like you that you need to have an open loop of communication so that you spot things before they become a problem because I think one of the challenging things is if you find out well this this is a problem and has been a problem It's frustrating when you haven't had a chance to kind of address it when it started. And what's interesting is I don't know of other businesses like that. No showrunner really comes up being, you're not that until you are it, if that makes any sense. Like you're not managing anyone until you get the job. So senior producers do somewhat. I didn't rise up through the ranks as a television writer. I I rose up being a screenwriter and screenwriters are the boss of nothing and no one. And so I like many showrunners, was just sort of handed this responsibility. And Rachel, who's my partner in the creation of the show, is it was 26 when we started and didn't have a lot of experience either. And I had a lot of expertise in the writing area and felt very comfortable in that. But learning to administer all these departments was something that I sort of learned at a run. I hired a couple of, there's sort of a couple of key hires at our show who not only do their job, but sort of help me figure out how to do my job best right off the bat. And, you know, how you hire
0: people, who you hire, who you surround yourself with is, is just the one of the hugest parts. How do you assess people out in an interview? How do you figure out, apart from Promptness, whether they're yes. uh, going to be what you need?
1: Well, Promptness is a non-starter. My sister-in-law who runs my brother's hotel business with him, she won't even interview people who Like if they're five minutes or 10 minutes late, she just says, you don't want to work here. And she sends them home, which I think is pretty ballsy. So when we started, I was really looking for people who were very all hands on deck because I knew that our show was going to be dependent on making a lot of different things run smoothly because we have the music department and we have sort of some auxiliary things in our show that make it a little more complicated. And so for the senior jobs, I had met with a bunch of people who kind of wanted to tell me that their bandwidth was a bit limited. Like, either they said, oh, I'm not really a set person, I only like the room, or I really specialize in this area. And then I was looking for a certain, like, nurturing energy, because Rachel does several jobs on the show, and she's the fulcrum of the set. And I was looking for people who wouldn't feel like, oh, I'm a senior person, I can't go get Rachel a bottle of water, if that makes sense. Because a lot of what I do is try and make sure that she is happy and comfortable and healthy. And that part of that is sort of just having your antenna up to make sure that this young woman is not falling over. And so whenever I interviewed someone, I tried to make sure that they were the sort of person who, you know, pitch in wherever was needed. So for the senior people, I met more people for the senior people than any other position. And I met a few people for the senior position who either seemed like they wanted to tell me they had a limited bandwidth or it felt like they were only going to be senior on this show because they didn't have their own show. Like it seemed like a compromised position for them. And then I met this woman, Erin Ehrlich, who the network had wanted me to hire someone who had experience on an hour show. And she doesn't really, but she had experience on a half hour show that was a little bit similar in tone to us, Awkward, where she had directed, produced, and been the co-show runner. and, And, you know, some of it is just gut. And I sat down and five minutes into it. I was like, this this person's gonna be by my side for the whole process and she has been and she has saved my life and there's nothing that I ask her to do that she's not prepared to do. And then Michael Hitchcock, he's an actor, writer, people know him from the Christopher Guest movies, but he's also a writer producer. And he had a ton of experience doing glee. So he had done a music show. Mm-hmm. And so he was really helpful. So basically I the first season, especially I had two senior people who were there. Every second of every minute where I couldn't be somewhere, who I trusted implicitly to take care of the show, take care of Rachel, and really people who would sort of, you know, cross a busy highway on foot if they needed to, and that has proven to be the same through the all the seasons. And I'm, I'm just endlessly grateful to both of them because I think I would be in an ICU. I mean, there's so much work to do; you can't do it without support. And then they also very much help me learn how to do the job. So looking for people who have areas of expertise who can sort of teach you how to do the parts
0: of your job that you're not as familiar with is very important. Right. And trusting that giving them authority, that authority doesn't undermine your own.
1: Yeah. I don't, yeah. I'm not worried about that because- Um, television show is like, it's like the military, the hierarchy is extremely important. People really respect the hierarchy. So titles are important. And it was one of the reasons why when we started, even though Rachel really had very, very, very little experience, it was sort of up to me what level of producer she would be because she had no quotes going in and and we could have made her a junior producer. But because we created the show together, and because I wanted her creative input to be really important to people, I insisted on her being an executive producer, which was sort of a huge elevation over what normally would happen, because I didn't want anybody to be her boss that wasn't creatively making the contribution she was, if that makes any sense. It felt unfair to me for her to be sort of part of, you know, responsible for the co-creation and giving feedback on the writing and writing episodes with me and and being in the show and then to have bosses besides, you know, above her that weren't me, that weren't her creative partner. And that people really in show business really respect those titles. The titles are very important. So it's 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 funny, it's like a military operation. And I, anyone who works in the producer's room will tell you that like, The writer's room is really a producer's room at this point. I'm always trying to, when someone comes to me and says, can you prove this? I'm always trying to say, ask Aaron, ask Michael, ask Jack, ask Rachel, ask somebody. Like to try and delegate and empower people. And four seasons in, people know the show and know the jobs really well so I can delegate you know, more, but there's so much responsibility and authority that comes with the showrunner job that I don't, I would never be worried about sharing that with other people. <laughs> and we also have our our line producer is extremely experienced. She started on 30 something. She did Lost. She did Alias. She did Brothers and Sisters. She's very experienced. So in as much as I, I nurture Rachel and I try and nurture the show, Sarah really takes care of me in terms of making sure that we're on time and on budget, and we're and that the crew is not exhausted, and she's responsible for all of that, and she's really a legend in the business, and she's just a wealth of information and anecdotes, and it's been great to have someone with that much experience, and they're all women. You'll notice the senior producers are in the beginning were me, Rachel, Aaron, and Sarah, and Michael were the executive producers. Now we added Jack, who's one of the writers on our show, is now an executive producer, but it's it's mainly female run. And our writer's room is seven
0: women and three men, which is unusual. Can you talk a little bit more about like, what's a specific improvement that you made? What's a thing that you spotted and was like, we could do that better. We could do that quicker. We could get more people home.
1: Well, television comedy rooms are notorious for people start really, really late. They play darts. They look at stuff online. They gossip, they eat, and they don't even start writing until like after lunch. And they're just notorious for working, you know, Till one, two in the morning, or even you know, it's not con- not considered unusual to work until ten or eleven at night, and it's one of the reasons why I did television in my early twenties, mid twenties, and then when I got married and had kids, I was like not e- I wouldn't even entertain going on a staff of a show because the idea that I wouldn't be in charge of my own schedule and when I would see my children was just unthinkable to me. I just very I, I there are enough people in TV who work from ten to six that I real I knew it was doable. Um, there are comedy rooms that do that. And what I learned is if you come in and you start writing right away and you kind of get to it, and we do like mess around and have fun in our room, but if you say you're going to be done at six, you're just done at six. And I, one of the things about having a lot of moms in the room, which we do is like, I became much more efficient as a writer when I had kids because like with my, my oldest, I had to be home by four 30. And so, you know, I'd be done writing at four and in my car at four thirty to be home. And when you have those restrictions, you just, you do it. You know, you do what needs to get done. And I found, you know, moms are very efficient at work. So that was an early thing was, you know, we've only stayed late in four years. We've stayed late maybe seven or eight times. With the crew, it happens to be that Sarah is somebody who really is an advocate of not going too long and not overworking the crew because, first of all, to to be humane, but also because, as she says, they're bumping into walls. When they get exhausted, people are just, they can't they can't do their best work. And so we try really, really hard with our schedule to keep it sane. And then I just think, you know, it's giving prompt feedback. And then really, the essence of why our writer's room is so fast is because I'm extremely decisive. And, you know, as my husband likes to quote, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good. You know, you're going to make those decisions numerous times when you're writing a show. So I make quick Decisions and then, if we need to change them, we change them, but I make very fast decisions about everything and I've always been sort of pathologically decisive, and so <laughs> it's um it's it's a good fit for me that job what's in what's been interesting is screenwriting was never a good fit for me because I'm social and and I like to be in charge of things and so when you're a screenwriter, you learn to be sort of very very passive aggressive in your communications and saying like you know maybe we might want to consider if you think about it maybe we don't want to do this awful stupid thing but when you're a showrunner you you're making those decisions and it just my husband always says you know even though my hours are longer it feels like I'm working less because I'm not emotionally stressed because I can decide something and there's something about living and dying about your by your own mistakes that is so liberating that it sort of it removes some of the stress that I had when I was reporting to people, because, you know, as I rose up as a screenwriter towards the end there, I felt like I was being asked
0: to defer to people who I knew, I knew better than. Right. You had a lot of authority and clout because of your success as yes. a screenwriter, but then structurally within that's the right. process of making a movie, that's right, you weren't the boss of it. So
1: structurally, you don't have any power. You can only gain, and I know there's probably a term for it, but I sort of was gaining like... Um, Soft power? Soft, is that what soft power? soft power is? Or, or like auxiliary power or, and it was, it was, it was uncomfortable because, you know, I would be sort of using my relationships to get what I wanted as opposed to, you know, as having access to the structural authority. And you really, unless you are the director in a movie, you just, or a super powerful producer, you just, the buck does not, stop with you. And so that's, you know, television is now a place where all the decisions are really being made by writers. And, and I think that's why it's
0: better. As a person who works with words, I'm inclined yes. to agree. But I'm curious, actually, broadly, whether you think the shift from Hollywood, the the kind of, uh, for lack of a less crude way to put it, the sort of prestigey, most interesting work seems to be happening yeah. in television rather than movies yeah. right now. And it's a place where writers are in charge rather than directors. Just in the span of your career, you've seen both. What do you think about the kinds of bosses that writers make versus directors? Like, can you generalize?
1: That's a great question. I think that um, we need to have more formal instruction for show running because I was really, I felt like a seven-year-old who had been given the keys to the car. Like, are you sure, guys? Like, you know, they, it's so strange. They don't ask you if you know how to do this. There's no training you know, that the, the WGA has a tr- showrunner training program, but it's mostly for people who are very inexperienced to just sort of acquaint them with how shows work. But when you are given a network show, no one comes in and says and explains to you the most basic things. And so that's why a lot of shows are really poorly managed. Because look, not all anybody should be bosses, but writers, you know, often have personal habits and experiences that don't lead them to be bosses. You know, in my case, I think there's a world where I would have been an executive. And so I felt like it did, it lent itself to my strengths in a lot of ways. But you know, I was really shocked at how much I didn't know and how much I had to ask. And I really wanted to create a culture where people were calm and happy. And so many people that we worked with in the beginning had been accustomed to working in environments where everyone was in a panic all day. That's a very common Hollywood thing, which is like you, you get behind partly because you're playing darts and doing whatever. And then you're in a panic and people fuel themselves with panic. And I am literally the opposite of that. I can't, when I see somebody panicking, like if I get an email that says urgent, somebody ought to be dead because there's no, we're making a television show. So unless someone's physical being is in peril, it's not urgent. It's never urgent. So I don't like panic. I don't like yelling. I don't like running. If I see someone running on a set, I'm also going to assume that someone has been grievously injured. And because it is a place where people can get hurt, you know, sets have to be safe. For me, calm and poise are very, very important. And I've really tried to surround myself with other people like that because, there's just this Hollywood like panic last minute, don't have my homework, Joan Cusack running to the, you know, running under the file cabinets and broadcast news energy that people thrive on. And I, I really find it counterproductive. You know, I, this is sort of a the kind of thing Rachel would say, don't say this to anyone. But you know, I had my thesis done in college a couple days before it was due so that I could proofread it. And, you know, we had those daisy wheel printers. So like, I could reprint the pages that had typos on it. Like, I like to be done early, we get our scripts done early, because there's an inherent chaos to any large enterprise. So the chaos should c- come from the outside and not from you. And I had worked for so many people in Hollywood, directors and writers that thrive on mess and last minute and deadlines and up all night and just not me. Well, and the notion
0: that, you know, you got to hang around and play darts until the muse strikes, right? I mean, oh, it's, it's sort of uh, particular to creative industries, I think, the the myth of the...
1: But it's to me, it's sadistic because I'm looking at people who, you know... Our room was like someone who just got married, someone who was pregnant, someone who was pumping, someone who had an 11 year old daughter. Like the fact that they would show up to work, that these people, writers like this, would show up to work and their boss would F around on YouTube and order food and not even start working until 5 p.m. when they've been there since 10, which is, which happens, and then keep them there until midnight, I think is like the most presumptuous unfair, sadistic thing to do to people unless you say to them, if you said to someone, hey, listen, I'm the sort of person who starts writing at 5 p.m., then we have dinner, and then I like to go till till midnight, you could probably fill a room with writers who love that because I have friends who work that way. But, you know, I staffed a group of people who were, you know, had moms who had tiny babies and people who had lives. And that was important to me that we have people who are thriving personal lives. And I just... I, I put myself in their shoes. And so, you know, it's it's I try not to put anyone in
0: any situation that I wouldn't want to be in if I were them. Women in Charge is brought to you by the Business Platinum Card from American Express. With the Business Platinum Card, you'll earn membership rewards points on virtually all business expenses. And you can turn those points into anything from new supplies to flights. One perk? access to over 1,000 airport lounges worldwide that will give you a calm space to get in the right headspace. Or Platinum can help you find that hidden gem for the best working lunch in town. Or get a few hours of me time after FaceTime with clients with guaranteed 4 p.m. late checkout at over 1,000 fine hotels and resorts worldwide. That's the powerful backing of the Business Platinum card from American Express. Don't do business without it. Terms apply to all benefits. Visit AmericanExpress.com slash Explore Platinum for more info. So you, as a screenwriter, wrote many wonderful movies, and and the one perhaps you're most known for is *The Devil Wears Prada*, which has in it? I think maybe, yeah, the one of the most iconic female bosses in movie history. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah, uh, I just did a screening of the movie *Network*, so there, there's another right. iconic female and boss. Sigourney and *Working Girl*. Right, there's there's a few, but I'm curious, uh, sort of whether having taken on this role yeah. of running this creative institution with 200 odd people working for it at any given moment has affected the way you think about the Miranda Priestley character and how you wrote yeah. her and what you thought about being a boss then versus now.
1: Yeah. It's funny because I always, when I wrote that movie, you know, I had really been Andy cause I tried to break into being a magazine writer in New York, experience utter failure. Her name is Andy Sachs. My grandmother's name is, was Tova Sachs spelled the same way. So I, I, and I had, you know, been that young person. And when I wrote the movie, I was in my mid 30s. So I was closer in age to her than I was to Miranda. Now I'm basically Miranda's age. And I'm, I've become a boss since then. And there are things about her frustration that I really relate to. But I also have always thought that anyone who ever got the wrong order at Starbucks has had a Miranda Priestley moment, you know, like, when you know, you order a sandwich and you, you specifically said no onions and it comes with onions, you know, you have that moment of like, how hard could this be, you know? And I was always very tapped into her, even, you know, when I wrote it, I was all very tapped into when you're trying to do a great job at something, it often feels like people are standing in your way for no reason, even if they're not. But what I love about that character is that it's not for her glory. That's to me her to her redeeming quality, which is what she she doesn't care about herself. She cares about the magazine and she cares about fashion. So she's a samurai who has devoted herself to the system and she actually doesn't care if she gets run over by a car. She cares about the magazine and she cares about fashion. And I think there's something very noble in that and I think you always you know that it's not about her personal glorification. And so she has obviously absurdly high standards and is very vocal, but I think anybody who's ever run any enterprise, organized a book club, you know, why aren't these people getting back to me? <laughs> why am I not getting an RSVP? How hard is it to make lemonade? You know, how hard is it to show up on time? That's that's a very basic human uh, frustration, you know, and she's very, very, very dry and, that's the other thing that I love about what Meryl did with that character is that she's not a wet angry. She's a dry angry,
0: which is scarier, I think. <laughs> uh, I've never thought about anger in terms of moisture, but I like it. <laughs> Have you had a Miranda Priestley moment? All right, you talked earlier about uh, giving – Negative feedback for yeah, you know, which which can be constructive feedback. Sure. But telling someone you didn't like the way something yeah. they did something. How do you deliver negative feedback?
1: Well again, when you say like or admonish, like those sound to me like value judgments. Mm-hmm. I kind of come from a place of assuming that people are doing the best they can with the information they have. So like yesterday there was something where someone didn't do something I had expected it to be done at nine AM and by two PM it wasn't done because he was waiting for my approval on something, and he had sort of passively waited for me to show up in the office to, before he asked me instead of taking the initiative to get to my assistant to say, hey, she needs to approve this because it needs to go out. But what I realized is he didn't really understand the urgency, and he's a new employee. And so I showed up, and he this thing that I thought was out at 9 was not out at 2, and so we wasted a half a day of this prep period. And so I said, you know, you need to let me know to get this approval for me in a more timely manner and he just didn't understand that part of his job yet cuz he just started doing the job. And so we I sat down and said, "Listen, this is we need to connect more on what how urgent is this?" And there are many people around you who you can ask my assistant, the writer's assistant who know, understand where we are in the process and who can tell you, Hey, is this something where I really need to grab her? Like I should text her instead of sending her an email, or I should have her assistant text her or call her because it's that level of urgency. But I don't think of it as like, he's not intentionally doing anything. He's doing the best he can given the information he had. So he doesn't have, he doesn't have a full enough brief for me is how I look at it. The problem arises when, if it happens habitually after you've given that feedback, right? So you generally assume, okay, well, they missed this data point and that's why they've dropped the ball in this area. Once you tell people nine times out of 10, they're like, oh, got it. You know, if you habitually tell somebody, hey, we need to be doing this and they don't get it. Like I, we had somebody work for us who really just could not be on time. and. And at some point I said to him, are you the sort of person for whom 842 is 830? And he said, yes. And there are lines of work in which that's fine, but production is not one of them. And so, I, again, I, I wouldn't put a value judgment on that him or that behavior. What I would say is you're not going to be happy here because you're going to be working with a group of people who have been sitting in that meeting since 830 wondering why you're walking in at 842. So it's a bad match. It may not be, I'm not saying that's a bad person. I'm saying that's not a good match for our workplace. So I try not if, I try not to lay over any kind of judgment because 99% of the time people are just trying their hardest. And if you have confidence that you've hired people who are, you know, making a concerted good faith effort to do a good job, then you
0: can sort of proceed from that. I want to zoom out a little bit to how you think women are faring in the industry broadly. Do you, you know, for women starting out in greenwriting today, would you say that they're better off or worse off than they were when you started in the early 90s?
1: You know, it's a tough, obviously we're doing an awful job because the numbers are just terrible and they don't move. You know, the number of writers and directors is just, it doesn't get better, that are female. It's a little bit better in television, it's a more open system, but, you know, we can all drag out the numbers, but they're just awful. The number of women that are directing is terrible, really bad. The number of women that are writing is still way, way under where it needs to be. The number of female showrunners, there are a lot of successful ones, but it's still overwhelmingly not, you know, they just did a study that 64% of the women in our guild report being sexually harassed. I think that there's too much emphasis on anecdotal stories, right? So like, this person's terrible, this person did this, this, and and those are important. It's important to get that information out so that people know who is safe to work with. However, it's a systemic problem. It's in which individual actors behave a certain way because the system allows them to. And I would love to talk more about the systematic ways in which women are not being let in. And what's challenging about it is I think a lot of it is unconscious assumptions. And I I have faced it my entire career. And it's it's almost never overt. Once in a while they say, oh well they're just not looking for a woman. But you can really feel that you're not getting certain meetings and you're not getting into certain rooms and you're not being considered for certain assignments because you're a woman. And no one would ever say we don't, oh, we don't like her because she's a woman. They're just thinking oh, um, that's not my mental image of the person who does that job, right? So it's stereotype bias. And I think we need to do act active training to confront people with their biases so that they can understand. And obviously, it's not just women, it's people of color, it's LGBTQ plus people are just not getting the opportunities because someone's thinking a director is a man with a light beard and a baseball hat and cargo shorts. And whether they're conscious of that or not, that's what they have in their mind. So when they meet a woman who's a woman of color and she's five foot two and she's pregnant, it doesn't seem to them like a director or a showrunner or whatever it is. And that's that's a systemic problem that you need to address with active intervention so that you confront people with their biases. And I would love for executives to be trained in understanding that when they're making a list, I mean, I still get sent lists that are crazy, that just have no women on it or no people of color on it. And people need to understand that they have certain preconceptions. We all have certain preconceptions, but if you work at a company like this, there should be you know, the, the the human resources training that says, hey, you know, don't say nice ass to the person who works for you. Like, I think everyone's getting that. But the using your power and authority to lock people out of jobs is something you have to point out to people that they're doing. And when I see it, the people who are doing it do not, not only do they not see that they're doing it, they think they're doing the opposite. They don't know what you're talking about. Because we we have like a very primitive understanding of our own motivations, People don't understand that they are hiring people who look like them, seem like them, and that that to a certain extent is human nature. But we've got to be more aggressive about saying to people, look at this list you made, look at who you're hiring, look who you're promoting, look who's around you, just take a look. And because people are not, by and large, not doing it in bad faith. You know, if you lock the door and stick your tongue down someone's throat, you're a bad actor and you shouldn't be working there. But a lot of the the ways in which, you know, sort of other people are being kept out of the business are by people whose biases are unconscious and they
0: need, we need, we need so much more education about that. Is one of the challenges in this industry, the almost pop-up nature of every production. I mean, obviously films pop up and disappear. A television show that exists for many years can become a slightly more stable organization just in like the sociological sense. But even then there's sort of a separation between that organization and the executives at the networks and yeah. and other institutions that are making the decisions about which pop-ups to pop up sure. at any given time. Right. Is that part of the challenge yeah, in this a, industry? It, it's a freelancy
1: business. And so it's dependent on relationships and recommendations and little communities of, of groups of people and those can clump into little homogenous groups. But if you're in charge, you have an opportunity to, Make an effort, reach out, be aggressive, and and as I said, you can't really just say my door is open. You have to go grab people. Like right now, um, there's a woman I've known for many years who I met when she was an assistant, and then she was my assistant, and she's a filmmaker in New York, and she makes incredible films. And I just came across a, a piece that she'd made, and I and I texted her and I said, have you ever considered being a director? And she said, yeah, well, I have, but I don't know how, blah, blah. And I said, get on a plane, come and shadow a director for one of our episodes. And she has two small children, and her husband just said, I'll cover for you. And she's here for three weeks, and she's shadowing one of our female directors. But she wasn't going to ask. She didn't know who to ask, but I don't think... She just was not wandering through the world with a great sense of entitlement about, I need to do this, and instead of... Waiting for those people to come to me, I try and identify and grab them by the hand and bring them over. Like just recently, I interviewed a bunch of people to be my assistant, and there were, I, I chose one, but there were two other women that I just thought were terrific. So even though I didn't hire them, I sort of went on a campaign to find them other jobs, and both of them got jobs. And they were both African American women, and I thought they were great. So we just me and then my the young people in my office who are have a lot of resources on that assistant level, we just sort of took it on, like, we're going to help them find um, positions. And so, you know, that's, that's what people did for me, someone has to put their hand and say, come over here. And if you're in a position where you can do that, then it's very meaningful and gratifying, frankly, to, you know, I went to speak at a college and I, this gentleman who was graduating from college just asked me like three of the smartest questions anyone's ever asked me about screenwriting. And I went to the professor and I said, who is he? And she said, oh, he's amazing. He's my best kid. And he won the award for screenwriting. And so I reached out to him and said, let's, you want to do this, let's try and help you get a job. So I got him an interview at my agency and he's going to work in the mailroom. And now I have the sort of the community of young folks on our show, helping him figure out where should you live? What's close to the agency? He, if he, he doesn't have a car, so here's the here's don't live here. Cause the bus will take you two hours live here. Cause the bus will take you five minutes. Those young folks have access to a lot of that information that I don't have because I'm old and it's been a long time since I was doing that, but I use them as a resource to help wick other people into the business but you can't wait for them to come to you because they don't know where you are and they don't know how to get to you.
0: I love "wick" as the verb there. Yeah. That's great. Can you talk a little bit about Female Filmmaker Friday, which mm-hmm. feels like part of this?
1: Yes. Well, that was born, you know, it's funny because some of the, things I've done in my life that have been coolest were born of procrastination because I found Rachel's video because I was procrastinating and I watched one video and then I watched 10 videos and then I arranged to meet with her, picture the idea for
0: the show. There is some value to the darts time. There (laughs) can be some value to the darts time.
1: And, um... With Female Filmmaker Friday, my friend Tamara Davis, who's a director, posted a picture of herself on set, and she said, we need more images of women directing. And I just love that. And I said, why don't we pick a day and ask a bunch of women to post pictures of themselves on set? We'll call it Female Filmmaker Friday. And she was like, I love that. And so we started it. And it was just one of the nicest things that happened was that somebody posted on Facebook, thank you for doing this. My daughter wanted to know how to dress to be a director for her career day at school. And now she had all these pictures to look at. And what I've loved about it is like, it's, you know, it's ladies in their backyard directing 16 millimeter and it's, you know, Ava DuVernay and everyone in between. Um, and you have to see, you know, it's just what I said before. You have to see here's a six foot tall woman who's pregnant and is wearing a beautiful dress to direct, you know, like everybody does it differently. And to see, if you have that many images, you're more likely to see somebody that you think, oh, that's me. You know, I'm the sort of person who might wear a suit to direct or I'm the person who's always going to wear shorts, you know, or I'm a person who might bring my two-year-old with me to set. Is that okay? And so like physical representation of what you want to be is so important. So it really took off and it's been
0: great. I have one last question for you, which is a little bit about the kind of work that you did coming in. So you made your name as a screenwriter writing, I'll call them romantic the, comedies. Right. They're, they were sort of what the version of romantic comedy was at the time, although right. work plays a more interesting and central role in them than in, in what a lot of people think of as romantic comedies. And it occurs to me that a young woman who wanted to be a screenwriter for film yes. right now might be in a much more difficult position than... Right you were just in terms of what types of movies are getting made. Do you think movies speak well to women now?
1: I mean, no. Do you? (laughs) Terrible. And it's like, the parts are so bad. I mean, we were laughing the other day about, you know, I get sent movies where they say, can you make the female part like bearable? Like she has nothing to say and nothing to do. And we were laughing about like, does anybody ever send a male a manuscript and say, can you make the male part not terrible? It's it's only gotten worse and TV's gotten better. If I was a young person, a young female writer right now, I would break into TV. And then you can maybe, once you get a little bit of work under your belt, you can transition into movies and a better a little bit up the food chain. And I'm doing a movie, I'm producing a movie that's written by two of the writers on our show. I mean, look, when I started, I was writing movies and I wanted to write TV. And I gave this, I wrote a couple spec scripts and I gave them to my agency. And my agent put me on the phone with a TV agent, happened to be a woman. And she said, "Um, Hey, so these are pretty good, but it's really hard to get on staff. Have you ever been anyone's assistant or anyone's girlfriend? And I was like, What? And she said, It just really would be a lot easier for me to get you a job if you had been someone's girlfriend. And I, had been thinking about switching agencies and I hung up the phone and I called my friend and who was trying to convince me to switch agencies and I said, I think I need to leave them. And I would love to say that that is not still the case, but, you know, there's still a lot of that. And again, my fear is that when you read about stuff like that and when you read about people being chased around hotel rooms and, you know, that we're going to scare women off from even trying. And that's, you know, I, when that happened, I had to go, well, you know what, screw you. I'm going to find someone who doesn't think that way. And I did. And I switched agencies to like, and I was represented by this wonderful woman who was, you know, very pro-female. I just think we're scaring, we're scaring women out of both fields by making it clear that, you know, it's, it's stacked against them, but there is a way forward. And I wish that I could say, that those things are not going to be said to you, but they are. And you have to, and I, I think in most fields, there's some version of that, you know, and in a way, it feels like you're being hazed to find a way to process that and say, you know, I persist. But it's, it's challenging. I think that TV has more female bosses, um, and not to sort of paint everything with the broadest brush. But I do think that you're less likely to experience that sort of treatment. However, it was a woman who said that to me. I think she was reflecting the patriarchal goals of her of her place of employment. But I can't promise any women, young women trying to break in that it's paradise, but I can promise you that there are people who are trying and you can try and seek them out.
0: Thank you so much. <laughs> this has been a great conversation. Thank you. And that's our show. Our producer is Jessica Jupiter. We had additional editorial support from Cleo Levin and June Thomas. You can email us at womenincharge@slate.com with comments, feedback, or suggestions for women we should interview. And please don't forget to rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'll talk to you next week.